So my name is Michael McKittrick, and I'm the church plant resident here at The Vine. And excited to, to, uh, to preach God's Word to you this morning. And as we, as we engage this topic this morning, um, there's a great uh, comic strip that really gets at this. Uh, I like reading the comics sometimes. Uh, the best are Calvin and Hobbes. Um, this one's not from Calvin and Hobbes. It's from Baby Blues, which is this great little comic strip following this family with three kids, lots of everyday humor. And in this one particular strip, uh, the dad is lying awake at night, and he's thinking, and his thoughts are, all right, five people, two bathrooms, we need more space. All right, do I get a bigger house? How am I going to pay for three kids' worth of colleges? The brakes on the van are done. Man, can I wait till next payday to fix them? Should I have gotten that adjustable mortgage? And then his wife wakes up and rolls over and goes, are you still awake? Yeah. Ironically, I can't sleep because I'm living the American dream. Um, I can't sleep because I'm living the American dream. There's some humor to that, but the reality is it's probably funny because we're like, man, I've been there, right? You're like awake at night and your brain is racing. And as much as Western culture, right, we have like more food, more clothing, more space in our houses, more everything, yet somehow anxiety is this increasing problem in our culture, right? You, and you're like, wait a minute, we have more of everything, but not more joy and peace, it seems like. And, and even if you're not a believer in God, everyone gets this, because every Christmas, the message is always what? It's not about stuff, it's about family, right? Um, so even there, there's this recognition that there's this preoccupation with stuff and anxiety that's not healthy. But it's not just this problem out there, like as if culture's got this problem and we're all good, right? Like every one of us can probably think of Maybe even this week, a night where you were up racing, your mind's racing, you can't sleep because you're worried about stuff, right? That's that's an experience that's common to so many of us. Why? Why are we so anxious? Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at a teaching of Jesus from Matthew 6, where he skillfully diagnoses some issues that are going on that lead to anxiety and then gives us a solution. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So before I read Matthew 6, let's just pray and ask that God would really speak and we would listen this morning. Father, thank you so much that you are a God of love, that you created this world You keep lovingly providing for this world, and you lovingly see us where we're at, and you want to speak words of life to us, words that will bring us to a life of joy rather than anxiety. And so I pray this morning that you would speak through me, and it would be your words that go forth, and that you would help us to listen and really hear And be transformed by your word for your glory and our good. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to read from Matthew 6, starting at verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. And Jesus, as he starts here, he, he wants to draw our first attention to this one, one problem, is a lot of our anxiety, I think, is rooted in the fact that we often don't believe that God will provide. So Jesus starts off with these beautiful word pictures, right? He's, he's actually teaching in Israel about 2,000 years ago. This huge crowd, they're up on this plain, probably up in kind of the, the hilly region. And so he's outside teaching. And you can just imagine him, right, like talking, and he's just pointing, like, hey, Look at the birds. He's pointing to real birds, right, just flying around. He says, you know, have you ever seen a bird go get a mortgage so they can buy a plot of land, plant food in it, weed it, work at it, harvest it, then build barns to store it so they can eat in the winter? Have you ever seen birds do that? No. Is there a mass starvation going on amongst birds? No. Why? Because God, your heavenly Father, he says, is providing for them, right? He's providing. These, these little birds. And it's not that the birds are completely passive, like they just sit in their nests with their mouths open waiting for God to drop food in, right? I mean, there, there is some activity. But Jesus' point here is, at the end of the day, the ultimate provision for them is not dependent on all their working and striving. It's God's care for them. He just cares for these birds. And then he, he looks in verse 28, not just at birds, but at lilies of the field. He says, check out these beautiful flowers. Are they, do they ever, like, go and, like, save up money to go to the store to buy beautiful clothes to look good? Do they ever, like, buy sewing machines and make themselves nice clothes? No, of course not, right? And yet, are they not beautiful? Has God not covered them with beauty? In fact, he says, not even Solomon, who is, who is the great Israelite king known for all his wealth and beauty, and not even Solomon is dressed as well as these if Jesus was, was kind of here today, he'd probably say, like, man, for all, like, your cool clothes, man, even the lilies are still better dressed than you, okay? Um, right? Like, man, God has done this, and the lilies have done nothing. They've done nothing to earn it, to deserve it, to work at it. God just provides out of his care for them. And so Jesus says, look, let me go from the lesser to the greater. So verse 26, he says, are you not of more value than they, the birds of the air? And these, these lilies, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. 
I mean, if God, the all-powerful, amazing God we just sang about, who's huge and amazing and great, can, can take time to care for an insignificant little flower that will be gone tomorrow. Jesus says, don't you think he's going to care for people who he made in his own image? Do you think God won't care for us? I mean, do the flowers and the birds get to call God Father? No. And yet Jesus repeatedly uses Father for the language of how we refer to God. We get to call him Father. And the reason why we get to call him Father is because God didn't send Jesus to die for flowers and birds, right? He sent his own son to die to save people, made in his image. That's his fatherly care. And Paul picks up on this in Romans 8.32, and he says, He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things if he gave him up? Right? If God gave his own son, don't you think he's going to take care of all the other things? If he was willing to send his son to die, do you think he's going to be stingy with a little bit of food? a little bit of clothing? Don't, don't you see, says Jesus? You've lost sight of trusting God to provide for what you need. And he says in verse 31 and 32, right? Don't, don't be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He knows. He's not oblivious. He knows he cares because he's your Father. He's not unaware that you need food to sustain your body. He made your body. He's not unaware that you need clothes. He covered our first parents when they sinned and needed covering. He's not unaware of our needs. And he's a good father. So he's going to care for us. Right? He's not going to leave us uncared for. And so maybe this morning, though, you're thinking, okay, I can see that in the text. I can see what Jesus is saying. I can comprehend that with my mind, but experientially, it hasn't felt that way. Maybe it hasn't felt that way in your life, or maybe as you look around at the world, you're like, it doesn't experientially feel like God is at work caring for everything. It doesn't feel like God's going to provide what I need. Lack, not provision, is what dominates my thinking and what dominates my eyesight. Maybe it's when you're trying to count up the cents and dollars to make all the ends meet. Or maybe it's as you're driving around Madison and you see the homeless on the street corners. Or you know of others in need and you're saying, where is God's provision here? Why is there this lack? It's a good question. It's a fair question. We have to deal with it in this world, right? And the answer that the Bible gives over and over and over again across Scripture is this. The story begins with God making us and making this perfect world to be home in, where there was no lack. But we said to God, thanks, God, I'd rather leave your house because I don't like your rules. I don't like living within these limits. I'm going to leave the home and go out on my own. And so we've left home. And so we've gone out into the world that's broken and has lack. And yet, 
And yet, God the Father still shows love to rebellious children. When his children didn't leave home, he didn't say, fine, that's it. You're cut off from everything. No, Jesus says earlier in Matthew's gospel, doesn't your heavenly Father still cause the sun to rise on the just and the unjust? Doesn't he still send rain to water the earth to provide food for the good and the wicked? He's still showing some of his fatherly care. And in fact, he showed the greatest care of all. He said, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send him out from home. He's going to willingly go and live in the broken places you are and die and pay the penalty of rebellion so that he can welcome us back home. So if you have lack, he says, come. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come and buy milk and wine and bread without price. That's the invitation of the gospel that the Father gives to us. Friends, the problem is not that the Father doesn't care to provide. The problem is with us and our rebellion and the rebellion of our broken world. And the problem is we too often only see the brokenness of the world instead of having eyes to see with faith where God is still providing, still caring not just in nature, not just for our physical needs, but ultimately through Christ. The problem is not lack of evidence. The problem is not lack of knowledge. The problem, Jesus says, is little faith. See, faith looks around and sees the world broken and says, I'm going to look up and out of myself to a God who made everything, who still provides, who presents his son, and I'm going to trust even when I don't understand everything else. I'm going to trust him to be good and in control. And the opposite of faith is anxiety, right? Because if faith is looking outside of yourself to someone else to trust you, anxiety is saying, okay, I can't trust God to run things, so I'm going to run it. I'm going to take control. I'm going to make sure I get myself clothes and food. I'm going to make sure I get what I need. And of course you're anxious because you're not fully in control, right? We all know that. Things can't turn out exactly the way we want when we think we're in control. It, it doesn't fix things. So Jesus says in verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? An hour, not even like a week or a year, an hour. Like a, that's a pretty small amount of time. He says you can't even add an hour to your life by worrying about it. And then he says in verse 34, right? Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, how many of you have really made tomorrow better by staying up really late, anxiously worrying about it? Right? No one, right? I mean, maybe like if you make plans, maybe it's different. But when you're just worrying, that doesn't help anything. You're just actually using up that time worrying, right? And so God's like, that's what happens when you try to take control. You end up with worry instead of resting in my care for you. And that's why Jesus is trying to draw our attention to all these things in nature. Because he's like, you know what? God is a good God. And you can see it if you look around nature. And he's providing and caring. And actually, he's been doing a pretty good job for a long time. Like, as far as I can tell, the planets are still in the right orbits. Like, they're not crashing down, right? You know, the sun doesn't just one day just explode on us. Like, things are still working pretty good, right? The rain still falls. The sun still shines. Birds and animals, like, 
grow and produce more animals so we can eat them. It's delicious, right? God's doing a pretty good job running the world. And so Jesus is saying, just look around. Have eyes to see with faith that God is actually a good God. And he provides and he takes care and he keeps things running. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to eventually go to the cross to really prove it. See, our first problem with anxiety is that we often stop trusting God to be the good provider. That's what's at root with so many of our anxieties. But then there's a second thing Jesus wants to get at. In verse you know, 25, he says this question. What um, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We'd all probably say mentally, yes, absolutely. Life is more than food and clothing. But doesn't it seem like so much of our time and energy gets spent with that? I mean, I know like every time I go to do my budget and punch receipts in and look at where things are, there's that temptation, right, for like all of my mind to be like thinking about that stuff. And it's real clear, Jesus isn't saying in this passage, don't think well, don't make any plans, like never plan for retirement or never actually save up money and make a long-term plan so you can actually fix the breaks when they go. God isn't saying that. What he's saying is don't be anxious about it. Don't be anxious about it. It's, there's so much more to life than this. So why are we so anxious? Well, it's not just we don't trust him to provide, but Jesus started verse 25 with, therefore. Therefore is a word that says something came before this that's important to understand what happens next, right? So what came before It's going to help us. Well, look at verses 19 to 24. Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, look, the reason why we're anxious is because we have a treasure problem. We have a treasure problem. We're loving sometimes the wrong things. So he says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to start to love something, treasure it. Put your treasure there. But also what you treasure reveals what you love. And that word for heart in the Bible, it's not just talking about the organ. It's talking about, like, the essential you, your hopes, your dreams, your affections, your thoughts, your will. All of that, that is your heart, the center of who you are. And Jesus is saying, look, you want to know what type of person you are? Look at what you treasure. Look at what you treasure. What are you always thinking about? What are you worrying about all the time? probably a good indication that it's your treasure, says Jesus. It's the thing that's of ultimate value to you. That's a problem. And he says, look, 
you've got to watch where your treasure is. And I think it's really helpful for us to realize, too, that treasure is more than money. Although sometimes our money reveals our treasure. I love the, the first parts of the Caribbean movie. Um, Captain Jack Sparrow in one scene is there with Will, and they're off to, like, rescue the girl. And he's talking to Will, and he says, you know, you're in danger of becoming a pirate. Because you, you stole a ship, you've hired a, a pirate crew, and you're desperately in love with treasure. And as he's saying this, the camera pans, and there's, like, all the silver gold in the water as they're going through the pirate cave. And Will looks at him and says, I don't care about silver or gold. Yes, but not all treasure is silver or gold, mate. Not all treasure is silver or gold. Right? But the thing is, whatever your treasure is, if it is, as Jesus says, earthly treasure, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. If it's located here, if this is its home, then actually it's completely logical for you to be worried because you can lose it, right? Moth and rust can destroy it. Thieves can break in and steal it. If your treasure primarily is here in this world, you can lose it. In fact, you will lose it because you'll at least lose it at death, if not before, right? So if, like, your whole life revolves around, like, your position at work and you just love it, it's not bad to love your job, but if it's, like, everything to you, then when you start hearing rumors about the company downsizing, you're going to be anxious, and rightly so, because your job is everything. But if your treasure is something else, you could maybe say, okay, God, I don't know what tomorrow brings, but today you've called me to work hard for you. So help me to do that. Help me just work hard today and honor you, right? This is not your treasure. If your treasure is your kids, they're everything to you, then of course you're going to be anxious and worried all the time for them. Because what happens if you lose them? Then you'll lose everything. But what I love about Jesus is he knows that our hearts are hardwired to treasure something. So he doesn't tell us, stop treasuring stuff. Just stop it. He doesn't say that. He says, stop treasuring the wrong stuff. The problem is not your love of treasure. The problem is you're loving the wrong treasure. That's why he goes on to say, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, right? Store up treasure in heaven. That treasure is worth it. It can't be taken away from you. You can't lose it. Well, what does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? Well, I think First Timothy 6, Paul really talks about this passage. And I think it really helps clarify it. Um, and so just listen to all the themes that are similar from this passage. Paul starts off and he says, as for the rich in this present age, which, quick pause, Paul earlier in the chapter defines anyone with more than food or clothing as rich, which means all of us are rich. Okay. So as for the rich in this present age, all of us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. See what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, if you want to store up treasure, this is what you do. You give away your earthly treasure. You hold it loosely. You use it not just for your own good, but for the good 
of God and others. You're generous. You do good works. You're ready to share, and that stores up treasure for you. But what I love about what Paul says is this all flows out of this. He said earlier, teach them to set their hope on God. You're not going to be generous. You're not going to do good. You're not going to share if you're holding on to all those things as your treasure. But if your treasure is God, if your hope is in God, then you're free to do that. You're free to give. You're free to love. You're free to serve because your hope is on God. Who, what does he say? Richly provides. Richly provides, right? When we see that God is good and provides and he's the best thing, then we can treasure him. The tricky thing is, if you're like me, you can't really touch or see or taste or experience that treasure, right, on earth? And you can taste and see and experience a lot of treasures here. And so sometimes, quite frankly, it just feels more real, the treasure here, right? It's just easier to think it's better. And I think that's why our two problems are connected. We love the wrong treasure, and we're really anxious about God not providing because really what we're most anxious about is that God won't provide us our treasure. It's not just that God won't provide what we absolutely need, but deep down we're a little worried that, well, if I treasure this thing, will God actually provide that thing for me? Because I know that there's this good treasure waiting in heaven in Christ for me, but I really like this stuff here, whatever it is. Derek Webber, a singer, I enjoy some of his music. He has a song called Wedding Dress that has a line that says, but I don't trust you to provide with one hand in a pot of gold and the other at your side. Yeah, I want to be by your side, but I also want to keep my hand right here. I'm a little worried about losing that. Right? And again, that can be a lot of things. It could be money. Jesus talks about money here. But also, it could be things that get revealed by how you use your money. And the thing is, when we've got our hearts set on the wrong treasure, Jesus says there's, this messes things up. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I don't know about you, but I, when I first read that, I'm like, I have no idea what that has to do with everything else around it, right? That was like my first thought when I read this passage. But I think he's switching the metaphor from heart to eye, right? So if your eye is good, you can see things, right? So if you can see the light, then theoretically your brain can see stuff. If your eye is bad, you can't see stuff. You're in darkness, right? So Jesus is saying, well, what is your heart that you love? If your heart is looking at something, is being set on something, like an eye, so now we switch the metaphor. If your eye is set on a good treasure, then won't your whole body be full of the fruit of that good treasure? But if your eye is set on a bad treasure, then won't everything else in your life reflect the darkness of that bad treasure. See, what you treasure defines how you live, right? So if, if your whole goal in life, if everything revolves around, I want to get a good education or I want a good education for my kids, then you'll do everything for that, right? 
You'll make sacrifices of your time, of your money. And education's not bad. But if that's your ultimate, and if that's what everything in your life revolves around, then other things will get pushed to the margins. And maybe those things might actually be better or more important. Right? Maybe it might hurt your family. Or it might hurt your following of Christ, which is the most important. See, Jesus says in verse 24, to sum this section up, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't orbit your life around two totally different stars. You orbit your life around one thing. What is that thing? You can pretend and say that you orbit your life around several things, but when push comes to shove, which one will win out? And Jesus says, one of them will, and that's your true master, and you'll despise the other. You'll put the other one aside. So when push comes to shove, what matters more? When you only have time for one of two things, the thing you choose is the thing you love more between those two, right? This makes sense. So Jesus says, look, if you say you're treasuring me, but your life actually orbits around something else, that's going to show up when push comes to shove. I've done a lot of work in kind of uh, youth ministry, and I, I've seen this where, um, you know, sports, I love sports, playing sports, it's a good thing. But when it becomes a consistent habit or pattern of sports being more important than gathering with God's people, that sets up a trajectory. And it could be a lot of other things, that doesn't, not just sports. When there becomes a consistent pattern of orbiting around something else other than God and his people and his kingdom, that's going to show up. And Jesus says, who are you really treasuring? What are you really treasuring? Is it me or something else? I like the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman trilogy. And in the very first one, Batman begins. You know, Bruce Wayne comes, comes back to Gotham, decides to become Batman. And so he's got to have this alternate life where he's just kind of party rich guy to cover up his Batman identity. And at one point, he's out doing that, and he meets Rachel Dawes, his childhood friend, who has grown up to be a district attorney fighting corruption. And she sees him, and he can tell she's disappointed. And so he goes up to her and says, Rachel, this, all of this isn't me. Who I am underneath, it's, it's different. And she looks at him and says, it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. On the one hand, there's a problem with that quote because it is what you are underneath that defines you. We talk about that all the time here, right? Be who you are. Who you are in the gospel, you live that out. But in the context of that film, what she's really saying at is this. If you say you're X, but everything you do is Y, the problem is that you're not actually X. You're actually Y. Or as Jesus would put it, you'll know a tree by its fruit. The fruit doesn't make it that kind of tree, but it reveals what kind of tree it is, right? It's the same thing here. What you treasure will be revealed when push comes to shove to be the master you actually serve. And if you love some other treasure than Jesus, an earthly treasure, you'll become devoted to it. Your life will revolve around it. And if it's threatened, you will be anxious. That's what Jesus says in verses 31 to 32. He says, don't be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? 
the Gentiles, that's unbelievers. They seek after all those things. That's their treasure. So, of course, they're anxious. But your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And He gives something better. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, look, if you're treasuring the wrong thing, that will lead to anxiety. And so maybe anxiety is a flag to help you see and ask, what am I treasuring? And is it really Jesus and his kingdom? So that leads us to the solution, which is set your heart on a better treasure. It's verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. Jesus says, look, there's a, there's a better way. There's something better to orbit your life around. It's me and my kingdom. It's living in my house, my family. That's the best thing. It's a kingdom that won't fail. It's a kingdom in which there will never be any lack when it finally and fully comes. It's the best thing. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what we read in 1 Peter, right? This is the best thing. And if you really see me as this great God and great Savior, who loved you enough to live the life you could never have lived in this broken world and then died in your place, then you'll realize this really is the best thing, to be in God's family. And you'll trust me to provide because a God who gives his own son for you is not stingy with the rest. And when we see God as this great treasure... When we see Jesus as the great treasure, we're going to live differently. And that's important because our lives do reflect what we treasure. I love this quote by John Piper. He asked this question. We want to ask, what will make Christ look great? Accumulating money and buying vastly more than you need does not make Christ look great. It looks like things are great. But, but we could change that for almost anything in our lives. We want to ask, what would it look like in my life to make Christ look great? To make it look like Christ is a beautiful treasure. I, I don't want to run after other things all the time to make people think, oh, that's, that's what life's all about. I want them to look at my life and say, I don't know much about this Jesus guy, but he's got to be good if they're willing to do that and follow him. If that's how they use their time, so what would it look like? What would it look like to seek first the kingdom? Say at work. What, what would it look like go, to go to work or go to school, not primarily with the thought of how can, how can I be the best and get credits? How can I avoid failure? How can I climb the corporate ladder? But what if we went in with the attitude of God, help me to work hard for you because you're worth working hard for. And help me to love my fellow employees and coworkers. And help me to not grumble or complain about anything. So I'd be stand out as a light and a witness. People go, why aren't you complaining about all this stuff? Well, I've got a better treasure in Jesus. It frees me up to just work hard here. What if we did that? What if, what if our parenting was driven by seeking first the kingdom? So it wasn't about looking good in front of other people. It wasn't about our comfort, but it was about... God, how can I help these kids love you? Because that's what really matters, not the other stuff. 
Or what about our use of time? I mean, we all have jobs. We all have these things that take up good chunks of time. But even in that use of our time and then in our free time, if someone looked at your schedule, would they say, oh, they must love Jesus with how they use their time? Or if someone opened up your budget, would they say, wow, that's crazy. I, they give away what? They put their money where? They do what with their money? That's not what I do with my money. Are we treasuring Christ? And the goal here is not, just be very clear, it's not a new legalism. It's not let's come up with a bunch of rules for how to see Christ first and then try really hard. Because you won't actually do any of this if you don't actually treasure Jesus. That's the most important thing. Treasure Jesus. And if you do, then you'll use your treasure well. But it all starts with treasuring Jesus. So maybe invite someone in your life to ask, as you're looking at my life, does it look like I'm treasuring Jesus? And if not, would you help me to see Jesus better? To see him as more beautiful? To see him as more who he is so that I would treasure him? Right? Because the thing is, we want to actually believe Jesus is better so that we actually believe that giving is better than receiving, so that we actually believe there's more joy in serving than being served, so we actually believe that being rich in good works is better than being rich in stuff. But it's only going to flow out of loving and treasuring Jesus. And you know what the fruit of that's going to be? Contentment, joy. God's wired us to be that way. So it's for our good, not just a bunch of rules that are going to stifle joy, it's for our good and for our joy. So let's set our eyes on Jesus. Because the only way to overcome a love of a lesser treasure is to have a love of a better treasure. My favorite book is Lord of the Rings. And there's this company of nine that set out on this mission to destroy this ring. And they pass through this, this, this woodland elf territory where the elf queen Galadriel hosts them. And as they're leaving, she gives them gifts to help them on their quest. And she comes at last to, to Gimli, the dwarf. Dwarves and elves don't get along. And so she says, Gimli, I don't know what to give you as a dwarf. I said, well, I don't want anything. I said, no, 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 I insist. I've hosted you. I've given everyone else a gift. I want to give you a gift. Just tell me what you want. And he says, well, could you give me one lock of your hair? that I might remember your beauty, for you are more beautiful than any gold or silver or jewels that I've ever worked with as a dwarf. So she does. And then she looks at him and says, Gimli, I can't foresee the future. Everything stands on the edge of a knife, but if good wins, I foresee that you will come into possession of much gold, but over you it will have no dominion. Because he had a better treasure. So if you see in your life that there are other treasures that have enslaved you to anxiety, the answer is just not like just stop it. The answer is God help me to treasure Jesus and his kingdom so that faith would replace anxiety. Seeking his kingdom would replace seeking our kingdom. And it would be for his glory and, and our good and joy.
Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you know how we're wired because you made us. And you made us to desire to treasure something. And you made us to, to treasure you. And when you see us running after lesser treasures, you don't just respond in anger towards us. No, you, you respond in love and you, you diagnose that and you call us to love a better treasure. Not just because it honors you, though it does beautifully, but because it's also for our good. It's for our joy. You love us as a father. You want to provide what we need. And the best thing you can provide for us is the treasure that is your son, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. And so would you draw every one of our hearts to love and treasure Jesus and of you seeking his kingdom as the best way of life for your glory and our good. Amen. Thank you. And as, as we listen, as you reflect, uh, we're reminded of, of maybe all of the ways uh, that we don't treasure Christ as we ought. Maybe all the ways that we're, we're far too easily pleased um, by the things of this world and fail to look to him. We're reminded ultimately of our, our need to repent, our need to come to him uh, with, with our sin um, and just remember that he has promised to take 